This is Tina Douglas, and you're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast with your host, my husband, Liam Douglas. Enjoy! Greetings, you're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast. I'm your host, Liam Douglas, and this is episode 273. So today is Sunday, August 28th, 2022, and these are the stories that caught my attention this past week. It's straight out of the camera photography, the purest form. The ultimate skill of the photographer, of the artist, is to create the aesthetics of the scene in front of them in the moment. The Natural Landscape Photo Award is perhaps the epitome of this with minimal image manipulation allowed, while the World Press Photo has a code of ethics. So straight out of camera, or SOOC, has got to be the pinnacle of ability, hasn't it? Or is there more to the notion of what an image is and where the skill lies in producing it? Photography is simple. You record light, i.e. count photons, of the scene in front of you to create a permanent 2D image. Of course, this simplifies the conception that we duplicate the scene we see with our eyes, which we can never do, not least because the human eye has remarkable capabilities. Not only that, but it acts more like a video stream. Our brains continuously process what we see. In fact, I'd go as far as saying that the static image is an alienable violation of how we perceive the world. John Berger, in another way of telling, recognized this with his concept of how long an image speaks for. We subconsciously imply time into any image we see and perceive what is just past and what will come to pass. Henry Cartier-Bresson implicitly understood this in his pursuit of the decisive moment. As much as this has become a cliched term, it says that if there is a temporal element to a scene, then there is a point in time that allows us to understand what has just happened, but more importantly, eloquently speaks to what is about to happen. It is the most aesthetically pleasing image that you could capture, but identifying that point without the benefit perhaps of Panasonic's 4K photo mode requires some deft camera handling. Of course, all of this becomes more difficult once you factor in exposure and the limited capabilities compared to the eye of the camera. Achieving appropriate depth of field and a fast shutter speed is difficult, and in the world of manual film cameras, considerable skills were required just to get a well-exposed image, let alone one that hit your aesthetic, which is why the work of good press photographers was so sought after, particularly if limited post-production was required. But there, that word has crept in, post-production. In the digital world, there is a clear demarcation with post-production. You download your raw file and ingest it into your processing workflow and adjust it to your heart's content. However, the film world has always had post-production, and this is no better exemplified than by Ansel Adams, who saw, quote, the negative as the score and the print, the performance. Adams also crosses us over from the press photographer to the fine art photographer. 
It's a pertinent point because the journalist is concerned with realism, the world as it is, and would choose focal length and exposure to best achieve this. The fine art photographer will have a different set of criteria and technical choices from which they will start. As the introduction made clear, some photo awards stipulate limited post-production, while others are targeted at extensive manipulation and utilize techniques such as compositioning. However, thinking outside of the realm of competitions and awards where there are often strict rules to follow, that may require submission of the original RAW file, there still remains the notion that SOOC is the pinnacle of photographic skill, simply because to get those compositional and technical elements to align in an elegant photo requires a degree of mastery. And there is an element of truth in that you obviously do need to have the camera in the right place to capture the scene you want. Pre-production requires an active selection of focal length to control field of view alongside creative choices of depth of field and shutter speed, while still also meeting exposure requirements. It's a delicate balancing act, but is SOOC the answer to the photographic question? When you chimp the back of a camera to see what you've captured, you are not looking at the RAW file. In fact, many photographers choose not to record a RAW file at all, preferring a JPEG at the outset. Remember that a camera is actually only a photon recording device, and these counts are stored in the RAW file. The camera has to capture those photons on the sensor efficiently before shutting, shunting the counts off to the memory card as quickly as possible. It's a delicate balancing act when you're dealing with high-resolution images, potentially at high frame rates. Also remember that a camera only has one sensor in it, not three. Why is this important? Well, computers also use color mixing to create the full gamut of colors that our eyes can see. The basis for this is red, green, and blue. The camera sensor is actually sensitive to all visible light, and a color filter array, CFA, sits over the sensor, letting through only red, green, or blue on a pixel-by-pixel -pixel basis. The Bayer CFA is the most common layout, although Fuji uses its own design on the X-Trans sensor. What this actually records in the RAW file is an incomplete, intermingled picture of red, green, and blue pixels. The demosaicing process separates red, green, and blue pixels into separate layers, then inter, uh, interoperates the values into every pixel in each layer. That's a heck of a lot of pre-production, and you still haven't even seen the image yet. When chimping the screen, the camera typically produces a low-resolution JPEG using the default picture style settings before displaying it on the LCD, along with the histogram produced from this image. The camera workflow actually highlights that not only has there been pre-production, but there is also post-production involved in the creation of an in-camera JPEG or quick look on the camera back. In the same way that film photographers could find greater latitude in the negative during development, so digital photographers can find greater latitude in working with the RAW file to create their own vision from the pixels they captured. 
The raw file contains the entirety of the light physically recorded and so marks the scope of what can be achieved with it. You can extend this further as smartphones have done with computational RAW, which creates a single file from multiple inputs and is the natural progression from RAW imaging. To a certain extent, there is a nod to pre-production in photographic awards, so they typically allow some uh, simple global image adjustments alongside corrections such as dust spot removal. What's striking about SOOC is that it is actually more about expediency. What you gain in the immediacy and speed of production, you lose in the amount of color you have over the final output image. Shooting in JPEG means letting the camera decide how to produce your photo. This leads to two obvious end uses. Firstly, there are those concerned about each and every pixel who shoot tethered you bypass the in-camera production system using it as a capture device and shunting the pixel straight to a computer. The obvious downsides are related to portability. You retain control getting the raw image into your post-production environment immediately. Secondly, for those concerned with speed, such as sports shooters, switching to JPEG allows the camera to bypass raw storage, applying in-camera production on the fly. This is much faster, but you lose some production control. This highlights one key question and one key point. Firstly, will cameras ever have enough processing speed to offer JPEG-like shooting with a RAW? In the strictest sense, maybe. Pro-spec cameras have tended to forego resolution in favor of speed, but they still aren't quite fast enough. If you were offered a 12-megapixel camera that could shoot RAW images at JPEG speeds, would you buy it? Secondly, it highlights the weaknesses with in-camera processing and how familiar end-users are becoming with image processing on their phones, be it raw editing through apps like Snapseed or filters and stickers through Snapchat. Perhaps this, is, this all just points to the fact that shooters want cameras to become more smartphone-like experience, but with the quality of a full-frame camera. All of which brings us back around to Ansel Adams. Capturing the photo lays the groundwork, but to produce an image of outstanding quality, you need post-production to a greater or lesser extent. Both aspects of the photographic workflow require skill, but perhaps digital post-production has both a lower barrier to entry than film and a vast array of options available. Straight out of camera simply takes the image captured and applies the camera's manufacturer's skill in pre and post production to create the output file. Sometimes that might be what you want, but sometimes it might not be. So this is an interesting story and I, and I wanted to pick this one for this week's episode just because I know a lot of people that do shoot straight out of camera. And it's especially popular with Fujifilm shooters because of Fuji's fantastic film simulations that can replicate their film stocks from the film days. So it was definitely an interesting topic to want to talk about today. And that's why I covered it. Now, I want to hear from you, the listeners. Please feel free to comment in the Facebook group. How do you view this? Is straight out of camera better? Or are you better off sticking with shooting in raw where you can totally control the post-production? Now, for me personally, I prefer to still shoot raw. It's not that Fuji's 
film simulations aren't fantastic. They absolutely are. But I still like to have as much of the element of the scene as I can possibly get. And that's why I still prefer to shoot raw files. Photos of sunflowers and Aurora taken moments before camera broke. Aurora chasing photographer Mary Beth Kaczynski had a battle, had to battle a camera that failed on her to capture this gorgeous photo of the Northern Lights dancing over a sunflower field. Kaczynski tells Petapixel that the screen on her Nikon Z6 camera cut out on her at a vital moment, but thanks to the helpful features, she was able to come away with the shot. Quote, since all the controls are done on screen, it left it pretty limited, explains Kaczynski. Quote, there is no focus checking. However, I did all the focus stacking for the flowers prior to the, sea, uh, the screen failing. Thankfully for Kaczynski, the Nikon Z series has an automatic focus to infinity feature when turned on. Quote, since the camera was already set up on the tripod, I just took images and crossed fingers that it was working and writing to the card, she explains. Quote, I had a general idea for exposure based on past events, so it was a guess. And lo and behold, it did take a few frames. Kaczynski has now sent the camera out for repair and says a faulty camera was not the only problem she was fighting. Quote, it was also incredibly humid. The lens would fog up almost instantly, she writes on Instagram. Quote, I'd wipe the lens, hit the button, and cross fingers. For the close-up photo of the sunflower, she used a Nikkor 20 millimeter on her Nikon Z6. But for the wider shot of the whole field, she used a Sony A7 IV with a Sony 24 to 70 millimeter attached. She took the photos on Hall Farm in Rock, Michigan, where she had been chasing the Aurora lights for five days in a row. Quote, this sunflower trip was part of a larger scale Aurora chasing trip, she explains. It was the fifth and final day and also about the last day before the flowers really started to lose their fluster. Kaczynski had promised to be on the private prop or had permission to be on the private property and was hoping to capture the magnificent lights above the field. Quote, as such, I did have permission to be out there on their property that night. I was monitoring the space weather data closely, looking for telltale signs of activity, she says. Around midnight, it happened, although very brief, about 15 minutes, that was all I needed. More of Kaczynski's work can be found on her Instagram and website. And good for her. And she did get some very amazing images of the Aurora and the sunflowers. It's fantastic. I love the colors. And she did a great job of getting the detail in the sunflowers as well. So congratulations, and hopefully your Z6 is covered under warranty. I don't know if it would be or not. I guess it would depend on how long ago she purchased it, since the original Z6 has been out for a little while now. Photographer's Italian engagement shoot was actually in an olive garden. Photographers in Tennessee who want to shoot with Italy vibes have a difficult task, but one creative wedding photographer managed to pull it off by going to an olive garden. She Cravens had the great idea to take engaged couple Carl, uh, Carly Bibb and Caden Mills to the Italian-themed restaurant after she visited one. The subsequent photos fooled some people online into believing that Cravens, Bibb, and Mills actually went to Tuscany for the shoot. <laughs> 
Quote, honestly, I would have believed it was Italy too, Mills said. And now, in a lovely twist, the couple appeared on Good Morning America, and the sweethearts were informed live on air that Olive Garden will pay for their honeymoon to Italy. One day, while photographer Cravens was eating lunch with her family at Olive Garden, the setting sparked an idea. Quote, I looked over at the building and said to my mom, this would be a cool spot to take some photos, she tells BuzzFeed. I've never shot photos at any other restaurant, but I've done a photo shoot outside Big Lots because it was really neat area that caught my eye to take photos at. The trio visited Olive Garden at six while the restaurant was closed so as not to disturb any diners. The photos could easily convince a person into thinking they were taken in some quaint Italian courtyard with neutral stone and ceramic pots and the soft morning light fooling the viewer. Bride-to-be Bibbs tells Good Morning America that she was initially skeptical of the idea. Quote, well, I was a little hesitant at first. We never had, we had never been to Italy, so we didn't know what to expect for the pictures, she explains. Quote, but when we got them back, we loved them. They were better than we could have imagined. Cravens posted a video of the photo shoot to TikTok and Instagram with the caption, when you want Italy vibes for your engagement photos, but you live in Tennessee. The video struck a chord and quickly picked up steam in the media, as well as garnering plenty of likes and views. For more of Craven's work, visit her website, Instagram, and TikTok. So good for her. I think it's great that she thought outside the box and decided to do an Italy-themed shoot at a local olive garden. And in return, the engaged couple got a free trip to Italy for their honeymoon. My hat's off to Olive Garden for being so generous to this soon-to-be-wedded couple. Prince for Wildlife returns to raise money for African park conservation. Over 100 photographers are coming together for the return of Prince for Wildlife, a campaign to sell limited numbers of wildlife photo prints to benefit the conservation of nonprofit African parks. Last year, Prince for Wildlife raised $1.75 million through 15,000 unique wildlife prints to support conservation in African parks through two print sales. And the organization says it is returning in 2022 with an even larger mission. Quote, the goal of this year's fundraiser is to support the growth of African parks and the addition of new parks to their portfolio. African Parks currently manages 20 parks in 11 countries across Africa, including Kafu, Zambia, Agaria, Rwanda, uh, Lawande, I don't even know all of these names, uh, and Malawi National Parks in partnership with governments for the benefit of local communities and wildlife, the largest and most ecologically diverse portfolio protected areas in Africa, under management by one conservation organization, Prince for Wildlife says. African Parks is looking to sign a number of new parks uh, within the coming months and years, including uh, Laguane, Luania, and Mavinga National Parks in Angolia and Boma, and Bandalingo National Parks in South Sudan, making sure that more exceptional ecosystems Endemic species and natural habitats are being protected while substantially and holistically benefiting communities and wildlife. 
With nearly 50% of Africa's landmass suffering degradation and the rapidly increasing effects of biodiversity loss has on the climate crisis, Prince for Wildlife is setting out to help African parks safeguard 30 million hectares of Africa's protected areas, contributing to the global target of protecting 30% of nature on Earth by 3030. Created by photographers Marion Payer and Pi Itis, Prince for Wildlife launched for the first time in July 2020 as the devastating impacts of the global COVID-19 pandemic started to be seen across Africa's communities and wildlife areas. To keep the support going, Prince for Wildlife will launch a limited one-month campaign from August 28th through September 25th. The organization says this year's fundraiser will feature more than 100 photos from acclaimed wildlife photographers, including Wild Berard Lucas, or Will Berard Lucas, Beverly Jubert, uh, Drew Doggett, Marcel Van Oosten, Amy Vettel, Jochem Scheismer, I don't know how you pronounce that name, uh, Karim Ilya, and uh, Guy Rebecca Van Dway. Each of the photographers will donate one fine art print to the fundraiser, which will be sold for $100 through the online shop prints for wildlife. And there are some beautiful images in this article in the show notes that you can check out for yourself. Quote, purchasing a single print at just $100 U.S. will help African parks and its goal to manage 30 protected areas by 2030, amounting to 30 million hectares of wilderness across the continent. Prince for Wildlife says, managed effectively, these vital natural landscapes will continue to safeguard biodiversity and deliver valuable ecosystem services that underpin human well-being. As mentioned, prints will go on sale for one month starting August 28th. Other than the photos shown above, a preview of this year's prints can be found on the organization's website. And my hat's off to them. I think this is a great thing, and I'm glad to see that they're doing this to help with conservation of wildlife. And as I mentioned a moment ago, there are some absolutely stunning images in this article in the show notes. There's a fantastic black and white close-up of a lion, and there's some beautiful pictures of some cheetahs, as well as an African elephant, some zebras, some killer whales. There's just a lot of really fantastic images in this article in the show notes that you can check out for yourself. Firmware Canon XF605 camcorder version 1.0.1.1 has been released. Canon quietly released this new firmware for the XF605 camcorder. I've been told that we could expect a similar type of firmware update for the Canon Cinema EOS C70 in the very near future. Firmware version 1.0.1.1 incorporates the following enhancements, adds support for Canon IPXC protocol, adds XF-AVC 4K intraformat, the highly efficient compressed format of 4K video, Add support for vertical shooting, enables face detection, eye detection, and tracking are now enabled when SNF is set to 24p to 120p. Add support for 4CH display and audio meter. REC can now be assigned to assignable button 11. Improved to retain the recording settings and switching between normal shooting and SNF shooting. Adds file name to SDI 
uh, ancillary data on the video output signal, adds built-in mic and mic terminal option in channel 2 input menu in audio setting, fixes an issue in which, in rare instances, the camera cannot be normally operated while operating the REC button with the camera set to continuous recording function. And you can download this firmware at a link in this article in the show notes. So good to see that Canon is still staying on top of releasing new firmware updates for all of their gear. All right, I'm going to take a short break right here, and then I'll be right back. We hope you're enjoying this edition of the Liam Photography Podcast. The best way to support the show is to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else that you get your podcasts. If you want to leave comments or suggestions for future episodes, you can call or text the show at area code 470-294-8191. And you can email the show at liam at liamphotographypodcast.com. You can find the show notes and links at liamphotographypodcast.com. And you can tweet the show at liamphotoatl using the hashtag. Hashtag Liam Photo Podcast. And now back to the show. And we're back. Adorama has the well-regarded Sigma 28mm f1.4 DG HSM art for the lowest price that we have ever seen at only $449. Both Canon and Nikon mounts are $449, while the Sony E-mount version is $539. This is really a steal of a deal. Key specs on the Sigma 28mm f1.4 DGHSM art. Best-in-class performance, dust and splash-proof structure, designed to minimize flare and ghosting. Designed to meet all shooting conditions, manual override capable of switching to full-time manual modes. Fixed vocal length of 28mm, maximum aperture of f1.4. Image stabilization, no. And you can get yours now at Adorama while the sale lasts. Next up, seven artisans to announce a new 18mm f6.3 Mark II pancake lens for the Nikon Z mount. Nikon will soon announce this new lens that will replace the current APS-C version. Update the minimum focusing distance of the new Mark II lens is 0.3 meters. The old version was 1 meter. The new lens will still be an APS-C, and this comes via photo rumors on the Nikon Rumors site. Another batch of Nikkor Z 800mm f6.3 VRS lenses is now shipping in the U.S. These lenses are now shipping in the U.S. I have not seen many reports of the 800mm Z since, it's initially, uh, since it initially started shipping back in April and then was later suspended in July. This could very well be the second batch ever to hit the U.S. If you already own the 800mm Z lens, please share your experience in the comments section. I've been getting a lot of questions about that lens. Thank you very much. Check Nikkor Z 800mm f6.3 VR PFS lens pricing and availability at Adorama, Amazon, B&H Photo, Paul's Photo, Service Photo, and Camera Canada. And in Europe at Wex UK, Park Cameras UK, Jessup's UK, Calumet DE, Photocot DE, and Photo Earnhardt DE. Next up, Fujifilm X-H2. These are all the rumored specs so far, and some of them apply also to the Fujifilm X-T5. 
For your convenience, here are all the rumored uh, Fujifilm X-H2 specs available on the internet, and 100% of these rumored specs have been leaked by Fuji Rumors. The Fujifilm X-H2 will launch on September 8th at 2 p.m. New York time at the X-Summit, priced at $1,999. There's the first leaked images and an accompanying link in this article in the show notes. Same body as the X-H2S, some video specs, 8K 30p, 4K 60p, and 1080 120p, 13 stops of video dynamic range, one 180,000th fastest electronic shutter, base ISO of 125, improved low high ISO performance, pixel shift for 160 megapixel images. Keep in mind that since it uses the exact same body of its faster brother, the Fujifilm X-H2S, many specs not listed here can be figured out by looking at the X-H2S. So, for example, we know it will take one CF Express Type-B and one UHS-2 card, and it will have a wonderful EVF, a PSAM dial, fully articulating screen, and more. Also, it will obviously have the same AF tracking features of the Fujifilm X-H2S, so subject animal tracking will also be on the X-H2. The list above mainly focuses on the differences between the X-H2S and the X-H2. And keep in mind, the X-H2 and X-T5 will share the same core spec, sensor, and processor, so I'd not be surprised to see quite a few of those specs come also to the X-T5. For example, I'd expect the Fujifilm X-T5 to have base ISO of 125, improved ISO performance, and I hope also pixel shift and 8K video, although this is just a wish of mine, not at all a rumor, so please don't storm me if the X-T5 does not have that. In any case, it is worth also for the X-T line lovers to follow the X-H2 rumors at as the X-T5 might encapsulate lots, hopefully all, of the goodness that the X-H2 will unveil on September 8th. You can order the Fujifilm X-H2S at B&H Photo, Amazon US, Adorama, Moment, and Focus Camera. So definitely a good article, an interesting article, and I have a feeling that probably a lot of these specs will be found in the X-T5. The question is, when will the X-T5 be announced? Will it also be in September, or will Fujifilm wait until 2023 to make an announcement? Don't worry. Why Fujifilm X-H2 with ISO 125 can't be compared with ISO 125 on Sony, Canon, and Nikon. When I shared the rumor of the Fujifilm X-H2 having a base ISO of 125, there were complaints from a lot of people saying that the other brands offer base ISO 100 or even ISO 64. But maybe we should not moan for now, and I will try to explain why. SEPA, the Technical Association of the Japanese Camera Industry, introduced a two, in 2006 a new measure of the sensitivity of a digital camera recommended for use instead of the ISO speed rating. They are Standard Output Sensitivity, SOS, and Recommended Exposure Index, REI. So two different standards, ISO SOS and ISO REI. Companies like Canon, Sony, and Nikon use REI standards, whereas companies like Fujifilm, Pentax, and Olympus use SOS standards. ISO SOS is considered more objective. ISO REI gives more freedom to the camera manufacturer, hence it is considered less objective. Quote, standard output sensitivity is an objective measure 
to find in essentially the same fashion as ISO speed for one of the two bases of ISO speed, but which normally will have a value of about 0.71 of the ISO speed. Recommended exposure index, REI, is the value the camera manufacturer recommends be used at, as the exposure index setting. It is not specified to be determined in any specific objective way, but may be chosen empirically to give what the manufacturer feels will be the best exposure results for most users and in most cases. You can go through all the technicalities yourself in the document linked below. But what it means, in short, is that you can't really compare ISO 125 on a Fujifilm camera with ISO 125 on a Canon, Nikon, or Sony camera. Will ISO 125 be more comparable to ISO 64 on Nikon, as some say the com in the comments here on Fuji Rumors? Well, I don't know that. But what I know is that on September 8th at 2 p.m. New York time, we will know a lot more about how well ISO 125 on the X-H2 performs, starting from the improved low-high ISO performance. And in the meantime, we'll just have to wait until that date gets here. SanDisk announces fast external drive up to 22 terabytes. SanDisk announced two new products, the G-Drive Enterprise Class, up to 22 terabytes, available B&H Photo, Adorama, and Amazon, and the Pro Blade, up to 4 terabytes, available at the same three retailers. Now, the Pro Blade has a starting price of $659.99 and is listed as coming soon, and the SanDisk Professional 22 terabyte G-Drive Enterprise Class, USB 3.2 Gen 2, has a starting price of $649.99, um, and then let's see, I'm not sure, I find it hard to believe that 649 is for the 22 terabyte capacity, but that is what it shows in the screenshot. So maybe that's accurate. Although that seems a little bit on the cheap side for a 22 terabyte enterprise class drive. I would think it'd be more around $1,200, but maybe that's just me. And last for today, this weekend only, save on Tamron, Sony, and TT Artisan gear sold by German store. For a limited time, you can save on these items sold by German Photo Earnhardt store. 60 off on the Tamron 28-200mm FE lens. By the way, this is the lens I regularly use on my hiking tour. See my Instagram post. Now, this is from Sony Alpha Rumors. 10 euros off on the TT Artisan 50mm F1.2 lens. 100 euros off on a different A7 Plus Samyang kits and save on ZV camera kits at Photocotch. And these are all the news stories and rumor stories that I found worthy to be shared for today. Remember to check out the Liam Photography Podcast Facebook group. It is a private group and you must answer a security question to join, which is the name of the host of the show, myself, Liam. And I've also opened it up to allow you to give the name of a previous guest on the show to show that you are a listener. Once you're in the group, you are free to post your own original work. 
I'm also the admin of the Fujifilm GFX 50R group, which is the largest group for the 50R on Facebook. If you own or plan to own the 50R, you can request to join that group, but you do have to answer two security questions to join that group. You can find my work at liamphotography.net and follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at liamphotoatl. If you like abandoned buildings and history, you can find my projects at forgottenpiecesofgeorgia.com and forgottenpiecesofpennsylvania.com. All right, that's going to wrap up episode 273 of the Liam Photography Podcast. I want to thank all of my listeners once again for subscribing, rating, and reviewing in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you might be getting your podcast. Also wanted to remind you to stop by the Liam Photography YouTube channel, subscribe to the channel, watch the videos, like them, comment on them, share them out on social media, hit the little bell icon so you can be notified as new content drops. And don't forget to enter the latest giveaway where I'll be the show will be giving away a GoGroove camera backpack. You have 60 days in which to enter the contest and you can find the link in today's show notes. So make sure you get your entries in as soon as possible for your chance to win. All right, that's it, everybody. I will see you all again on Thursday.